Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Today I want to talk a bit about wind turbines, the promise of green energy, and the harm they're causing wildlife, especially birds like eagles. Modern energy producing wind turbines are truly a marvel of ingenuity and engineering, far removed from windmills of the distant past. The first mention of windmills was in 644 AD in Persia, and later in the 12th century, they were known to be used for grinding grain and moving water. But the relevance of old-fashioned windmills faded when electricity as a power source developed during the Industrial Revolution. While the traditional windmill harnessed the power of the wind to complete various tasks, wind turbines harnessed the power of the wind to generate electricity. The physical size of wind turbines can be huge. Offshore wind turbines can be as large or larger than the Statue of Liberty. The modern wind turbine industry boomed in the 1970s in a need to produce alternative energy, sparked by the oil crisis of 1973 and the energy crisis of 1979. Developing more environmentally friendly alternative sources of energy is a worthy endeavor that overall I support. However, what has become shockingly clear is that environmentalists and conservationists are unwilling to have the complete and complex conversation about the effect that wind farms are having on our very own wildlife, particularly on our birds. In 2013, the Wildlife Society Bolton published a study stating that wind turbines killed approximately 573,000 birds annually in the United States. Considering that that number was reported nine years ago and the wind farming industry has grown since then, the statistics have certainly worsened. Eagles.org reports that by 2030, the United States is aiming for 20% of its generated electric energy to originate from wind turbines, compared to 2016, when only about 5.5% was generated in this fashion. So it's a tough goal to shoot for, for sure. But my biggest worry is that ever-increasing numbers of eagles may be killed in pursuit of so-called green energy. More evidence of the killing comes via the United States Fish and Wildlife Services, which gathers deceased bald and golden eagles so that Native American people are able to legally own and acquire eagle feathers and other parts. Since the rise of industrial wind turbines in the Midwest, the Eagle Repository, that's what they call it, has seen a 250% increase in eagle carcasses sent in. Terry McGovern, writing for the Gazette, also reports that the most likely place for an American to find an eagle carcass is near a wind farm. And of course, we know this and have discussed this in past shows. Still, getting hard data is challenging. In general, it's been the practice for wind farms and wind energy companies to keep the data on bird casualties confidential and unavailable to the public. The only state in our country that requires the mortality data be made available to the public upon request and that the data be collected by independent third-party companies is Hawaii. Now, wouldn't you think that all wind energy companies should be required to release data on the damage their wind turbines have caused to the local wildlife? It's not in their interests to do so. So we need to close that loophole. Now, 
A little explanation about how and where wind farms are allowed to be built is in order before we get to the company ESI Energy, which recently was finally found guilty of killing 150 eagles in violation of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Construction of smaller community wind farms are regulated locally, guided by ordinances, zoning restrictions, and then permitting. But the larger wind farms that serve the energy grid, they must deal with a few agencies to get their permits, including the Bureau of Land Management, the United States Forest Service, the Conservation Reserve Program or Forestry Stewardship Council if the site of a wind farm is on a land trust, the Federal Aviation Administration if a structure is over 200 feet high and close to an airport or in critical flight paths, and the United States Fish and Wildlife Service if a wind farm or turbine poses a threat to wildlife or potential interruption to migration patterns. Companies do not necessarily need permits from the United States Fish and Wildlife Service in order to build their wind farms. However, if they wish to avoid prosecution for potentially violating the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, which makes it illegal to kill bald eagles under federal law, it would seem advisable. Now, ESI Energy it's a subsidiary of renewable energy giant NextEra Energy, Inc. Since 2012, ESI has been responsible for a minimum of 150 bald and golden eagle deaths at 50 of its wind farms. Out of the 150 deaths, 136 were directly attributed to the bird's collision with the wind turbine blades. But it took a lawsuit to reach that conclusion. You see, prior to building new wind farms in Wyoming and New Mexico, ESI was warned that their wind turbines were likely to lead to bird casualties. They ignored the warnings and continued anyway. The wind farms built in Wyoming is what ultimately raised a red flag to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service because they noted in March 2019 that there was an abnormally high number of golden eagle nests in Converse County, Wyoming, where ESI had already decided to install their next wind farm. This is when U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service warned ESI that this could cause many eagle casualties and the company ignored them. This is also what brought the company to court a few years later, since the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service already had them under close watch. The United States Department of Justice found that ESI did not apply for the appropriate permits, which would allow them to operate their wind farms. ESI was finally found guilty of violating the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, under which the, quote, Killing, capturing, selling, trading, and transport of protected migratory bird species without prior authorization by the Department of Interior, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. ESI failed to follow a law that has been in place to protect migratory bird species, and they got away with it for about 10 years. They now must pay an estimated $8 million in fines and restitution and begin a five-year probation. Here's what the probation consists of. The company has been assigned an Eagle Management Plan requiring a budget of $27 million in efforts to minimize unnecessary casualties brought upon the Eagle population surrounding their wind farms. ESI will also be held financially responsible for each bald or golden Eagle death that they cause. And 
Obviously, since it's what got them here, the last part of their court ruling states they must apply for the essential permits at each wind energy facility where eagle killings might occur. Todd Kim, the Assistant Attorney General of the Justice Department's Environment and Natural Resources Division, reacted to the court's ruling, stating, For more than a decade, ESI has violated wildlife laws, taking eagles without obtaining or even seeking the necessary permit. We are pleased to see ESI now commit to seeking such permits and ultimately ceasing such violations. Conversely, a predictable response from ESI's parent company was released, which states, We disagree with the government's underlying enforcement activity. Building any strutting, driving any vehicle, or flying any airplane carries with it a possibility that accidental eagle and other bird collisions may occur. Now, that's a brilliant response, isn't it? So for us, it's been obviously encouraging to see that courts are beginning to hold energy companies accountable with their effect on the local ecosystem. It's not about tearing wind energy down, but rather about ensuring that wind energy can be conducted responsibly so it doesn't destroy the landscape and inhabitants of the very planet it's trying to protect. The pursuit of cleaner energy production must not absolve companies of the responsibility to other species on the planet. And I think there's too much of this halo effect in the so-called green energy domain. Besides killing individual birds, as documented in the ESI case, the disruption of migratory patterns and in coastal wind farms, the interruption of the communication systems of marine life, all these must be given greater weight by industry and be more fully recognized by green energy advocates generally. And, and by the way, if you're unfamiliar with what I'm referring to about the marine life, Kernan Kelly, CEO of Oceans Integrity, explains that ocean wind farms can interrupt the communication systems of marine life. And this changes the way sea animals are able to gather and hunt and mate and migrate and survive. It affects their entire way of life and intercepts communication patterns that can span hundreds of thousands of miles. So it's all too obvious that energy companies are not placing enough consideration into where they build their wind farm sites and that site's relation to birds, bats, and other nearby wildlife. Maybe the ESI result will change that. According to Michael Hutchins, the director of American Bird Conservancy's 2020 Bird Smart Energy Campaign, wind energy companies can now hire a consultant to conduct a study on the effect their wind turbines will have on the wildlife surrounding them before installation. But the individuals they hire do not need to be scientists or deeply accredited in the field. And Hutchins reports that he has yet to encounter a pre-construction study done that suggests altering, delaying, or canceling a project in some way because of its effect on wildlife. Well, that tells you a lot right there, doesn't it? So I think Hutchins is on the right track here. And in my view, there's indeed a conflict between green energy advocates and animal protectors. But, of course, you don't have the green energy factions over here and the animal people over there. There's a lot of overlap, and even an individual can feel conflicted. So, in conclusion, 
I applaud the judgment against ESI and hope we can continue to require rigorous, objective, and uncorrupted studies to guide effective and humane site determinations for large wind farms. And I hope we can be aware of the green halo effect and keep open minds and a healthy dose of skepticism and vigilance as the industry continues to grow. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. More with Animals Today right after the break. Welcome back to Animals Today. If you're a cat or dog guardian, hopefully your animal has identification tags on their body and is microchipped. Many people think ID tags are enough if your companion animal gets lost or escapes from your home, but it's really not. I mean, what if the collar falls off of him or her, or someone purposely or accidentally removes their collar and tags? Then what? Having both identification tags and microchipping your pet is the best thing you can do to ensure in the unlikely event you are separated from your animal that he or she will be successfully reunited with you and your family. Now, in a minute, I'm going to tell you a little story to emphasize this point that microchipping your animal is needed in addition to identification tags. But first, what is a microchip? Microchips are small. They're about the size of a grain of rice. A hermetically sealed glass capsule keeps moisture out and contains a chip, antenna, and a capacitor. Now the microchip is inserted into the loose skin of your dog's shoulder with a large needle. Now this may sound painful, it really isn't. The dogs don't even flinch when it's inserted, so it doesn't even require sedation. A very interesting little fact here in 1985, Dr. Hannes Stoddard invented the microchip-based pet recovery system and formed American Veterinary Identification Devices, AVID, A-V-I-D. AVID's pioneering work in the field of radio frequency identification has been globally recognized by the award of 37 patents. AVID saves pets' lives every day by reuniting thousands of lost animals with their families. Now, I want to tell you a true story. A few years back in Indio, California, a stray or, or lost dog was picked up and delivered to the Animal Care Center of Indio Animal Shelter. So that's the, the animal shelter in Indio, California. Although the shelter's usual protocol, like most shelters in the country, was to perform a scan for a microchip upon intake to help determine who quote, owns this dog. Their scanning device had been broken for a while and dogs simply were not getting scanned. Now we learned about this serious and unfortunate breach of standard protocol in a rather roundabout fashion. A few times a year, my friend Catherine would on her own arrange for anywhere from five to 10 dogs to be transported from this disgraceful shelter in Indio, which had a very high kill rate to a Northern California shelter, which was highly successful at getting their dogs into loving homes. Now, after making all the transfer arrangements, Catherine would pack up her own vehicle and escort the dogs to the safety of the northern shelter. 
Now, the dog in question upon entering the northern shelter was scanned and found to have a microchip, which provided enough information to locate the dog's owner, who proved to be a resident of the town of Indio. Even though the dog had no ID tags, being microchipped made it possible to find the owner. Now, this man truly loved his dog and was terribly upset when he lost him. He immediately jumped into his car, drove 500 miles to reclaim his dog and reunite him with the rest of his family. So, except for the unnecessary thousand miles of driving, the stress the dog experienced and the expense incurred by the owner, this fiasco ended happily. Nevertheless, think how easily it could have been completely avoided if the Indio shelter only had a functioning scanner and used it. This dog was lucky to get out of the Indio shelter and to get scanned, even if 500 miles away. But we'll never really know how many lost and stray dogs picked up by the city of Indio's animal control during the time the shelter was not properly scanning were unnecessarily killed instead of being reunited with their families. So very important, number one, make sure your dog and cat is microchipped. Number two, keep your microchip registry information current. The shelter where you adopted the dog or cat or a veterinarian can assist you in locating the registry for the chip. And number three, don't forget all companion animals should also be wearing current identification tags. And you are listening to Animals Today, your home for series talk about animals. Join us each week for animal news from around the world and visit us at animalstodayradio.com. I want to remind my listeners how important it is to plan for the care of your animals in case you die before them. And I want to tell you a little story related to this. Several years ago, when I was single and living in a condominium in Palm Springs, I had an elderly neighbor who lived across the way who had a dog, Chloe. Chloe was an eight-year-old white terrier mix, and my neighbor just loved this dog. Now, sadly, after an illness, this woman passed away, and she never made arrangements for someone to care for Chloe after she died. Now, her children traveled from the other side of the country to bury their mother, but they had no interest in taking or adopting Chloe, so Chloe ended up in a shelter where, as you know, tragically, many unwanted dogs are euthanized. This was clearly the last thing my neighbor would have wanted to happen to Chloe. Now, fortunately, because of my good working relationship with the shelter personnel, they agreed not to euthanize Chloe and to hold her until I could find a loving forever home. And fortunately, this did happen. Chloe lived out her senior years, not only with a wonderful couple, but with their shepherd mix, who she adored. And you helped place Chloe, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. And your friend who passed away, she didn't have a will, but also didn't tell her children what she would want to happen to Chloe. So there was really chaos, wasn't there? There was chaos. Okay, so there's the big message. You have to plan, but what really should you do? And you spoke with Francis Carlyle, a legal expert about this uh, a few months ago, didn't you? Yes, Francis is a New York attorney specializing in trust and estate planning, and she shared her experiences with us in the steps all dog guardians should take when preparing their will. 
And the first is that you need to prepare something and you need to have a lawyer who's experienced in this. She explained that many lawyers, they did not learn this in law school and they're just not up to what they uh, could do or should do. So make sure you uh, speak with someone who's done this before. Which is not to say that you necessarily need a will if you are going to communicate your wishes to trustworthy friends or family and even get it in, in writing. But just uh, make sure you take some steps so, so people know what you want. But Peter, you need an agreement from your friends or family. A lot of times friends or family don't really want that responsibility after they're gone. So just don't lay it on them. A further step you could take is to create a pet trust, right? Right. So you can't leave property or money directly to your companion animals. They're not allowed to receive that, but you can create a legal structure, a trust uh, that you can fund with money and then designate trustees to care for your animals when you're gone with your specific instructions. And it's important to review your arrangements each year to confirm that the caregivers and trustees you've chosen are still willing and able to fulfill these duties. And we do that yearly with our people too, don't we? Right. Which reminds me of uh, Leona Helmsley. Yes, Leona Helmsley and her dog, Trouble. Trouble. So Trouble was her Maltese dog, and she left $12 million in the trust fund for Trouble. Right, Peter? But later, the judge lowered the inheritance to $2 million. And listen, after receiving numerous death and kidnapping threats, Trouble retired to Florida. And she died at the age of 12 in 2011. But she had full-time security and received round-the-clock, luxurious care from the general manager of the Helmsley Sandcastle Hotel in Sarasota. So that's probably the richest inheritance by any animal. I do believe so. that there is a National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri. Yes, it's true. And if you ever get out there, you should really visit it so you can get up on your history and learn about uh, this important event. I've just learned that they have a collection relating to the dogs that were involved in that horrible conflict. I want to welcome Doran Cart. He is Senior Curator at the National World War I Museum and Memorial. Welcome, Doran. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so I was able to uh, view a little bit of the collection related to uh, dogs in World War One. Tell us, uh, give us an overview of what you've got going on there, and uh, and how does the public access what you have? Okay, um, we don't have a whole lot of physical objects related to dogs. We have a few, but primarily it's through our records and our resources that we have in our public use library. But um, over the years, I've been real interested in uh, you know doing research on dogs uh, that were in World War One, and they were they were incredible. Uh, animals and made contributions to the war effort. Dogs were really uh, played important roles uh, for most of the armies that were involved uh, in World War One from 1914 to 1919. Uh, dogs hauled machine gun and supply carts and lots of other supplies. 
their main um, one of their main efforts were that they were messengers, and they offered delivered their missives under a hail of fire. And according to one French source that we have here at the museum, at one time during the war, more than two thousand dogs were in service on the Western Front. That's incredible. And dogs were also. Uh, they were also trained, especially by the French Army, to be first aid dogs. And they were selected and carefully trained, often by, for months, to go onto battlefields and locate wounded soldiers. And they were trained to either stay with the soldier until human aid came, or to bring back evidence of the wounded French soldier. And many of the dogs actually carried first aid kits in packs on their backs for immediate use for treating wounded soldiers. So they were very important in that aspect. They really uh, served in a lot of those efforts, but many others. Um, one of the ones that we have photographs of uh, in our collection, the French used the small dogs in their trenches for rat catchers. Oh because rats were the overwhelming scourge of trench life, and those rat-killer dogs proved invaluable. And there's one picture that we have. It shows all these rats lined up on the side of the trench and the rat-killer dog sitting on top very proudly looking at all his catches with his French handler. And rats were a scourge because they spread disease, they would eat the soldiers' food, and they would actually, you know, attack soldiers when they were sleeping. And so to have these kind of rat catchers was very important. Really the most important aspects of dogs in the war is that they were friends. They were mascots. They were companions. And they played an important role in morale building. And they created, what was really important, they created a feeling of home life under war conditions. Probably the most famous dog and, and people of my generation certainly heard of came from a pair of puppies that were rescued by a fellow who was in a, an Air Force unit. And they were looking at a abandoned German airfield to see if they could use it for their headquarters. And there were two German Shepherd puppies that had been abandoned. And uh, the soldier adopted them, and he named them after these two kind of souvenir French dolls that a lot of the soldiers brought home with them. And the dogs were the dolls uh, were named Rin Tin Tin and Nanette. And so the soldier named his puppies Rin Tin Tin and Nanette. And he got the, got permission to bring them home. They had to be quarantined, and they had to have their shots and everything before they could put them on the troop ships. So he had the two puppies and brought them home. And right before the ship landed in New York, uh, Nanette died of distemper. But the male puppy, Rin Tin Tin, survived. And the owner, the fellow who uh, had saved him uh, at the, in, uh, the battle, from the battlefields, took him home with him to California. And as he grew, he, was, uh, he trained and he entertained 
people in the neighborhood and everything, and a Hollywood director saw this dog and said, wonder if he could do tricks in a movie. And so he did, and he became one of the most famous movie stars of the late 1920s and early 30s. And, of course, his name was Rin Tin Tin. You provided a couple of short videos to me, or your team did, and uh, one of them shows uh, the soldiers taking the message out of the capsule around the dog's collar. It's really amazing. Uh-huh. Why was this needed? Were there not radios at that time? Uh, give us a little well, context. There were no wireless radios. Yeah. Uh, uh, there were, you know, everything was wired. So telephones were the main main means of uh, communication, but in areas where they didn't have the telephone wires strung and they couldn't use other methods of communicating, then they would use the dogs as messengers. And one kind of anecdotal story about dogs as messengers, and one of the main reasons that they were used was they could get low to the ground, and so they were not in sight of the enemy. And the other one, believe it or not, in a horrible war that was going on and and the millions of people killed, uh, humans actually found it hard to shoot at dogs. Mm. They could shoot at humans, but they found it hard to shoot at the dogs who were on the battlefield. So they kind of had a little shield around them because of the uh, human's affection for dogs. One of the images your team also forwarded to me was a almost like a postcard, and it's got five dogs uh, uh-huh. f- from different countries, and the uh, caption is, I'm neutral but not afraid of any of them. And they're dressed as if they're from those countries. What does that mean? Why was this produced, and who's it talking to? Well, basically, it, that postcard, and, and it's one of my favorites, I know it very well, was done in 1915, and America was still neutral at that time, and the United States did not join as a full fighter in the war until April of 1917. And so uh, that was not the only instance like this that dogs were actually used as propaganda. And so their images, and the one you're you're talking about, the British are represented by the English bulldog, and the German by the dachshund, and the American by the bull terrier. And if I recall correctly, he's got a basically an American flag tied around his neck. And then the French bulldog, he's dressed like a French soldier, and the Russian wolfhound like a Russian soldier. And he's you know, and the, and the American dog saying, I'm neutral, but not afraid of any of them. And that's what he meant, you know, that America would side with with people, but he was not afraid of fighting any of the, well, people or dogs that are represented in the card. And so dogs were used in that way, especially uh, the anti-German sentiment by the, created by the Americans on postcards and things like that, and so he was always represented like as a dachshund with the spiked, the ubiquitous spiked helmet on his head, and that was one kind of thing that the Americans knew about the German army was that spiked helmet, yeah, and because it represented uh, the Prussian uh, attitude, and so uh, that's how they were represented. But I know there's another postcard where 
where an American Uncle Sam's hand is holding the poor little dachshund by the neck saying, you know, uh, I'm not going to be bitten by you or something like that. So, uh, yeah, he the dachshund suffered pretty much in the propaganda that was put out during the war. And one of the most striking images you also shared with me was a line of dogs pulling those machine gun carts you referred to. That is really uh, an incredible thing to imagine. What's the story behind an image like that? And uh, if it's the same picture that I'm thinking of, uh, those are Belgian uh, work dogs, and they were part of the Belgian army. And the, the machine guns that the Belgians were using were very heavy, and so and the ammunition. And so they had these they had these carts, and the Belgians didn't have as the horses that they had available were primarily used for the artillery, and so the dogs then were used for pulling the machine gun carts. And yeah, there is one really great picture of the Belgian troops, and this is early in the war in the fall of 1914, uh, showing the dogs there with that are laden down pulling the machine gun carts. And I know there's another photograph of uh, a couple of American soldiers uh, who were kind of playing around for selfies, as we would call them today, photo opportunities and they're and one of them sitting in a in a dog pulled cart and so they were used for labor like that as well doran what else can visitors uh, see when they come visit the museum i'll give you a chance to pitch the museum so everyone nearby will come visit you we are an international museum and all the nations who were involved in world war one are represented here at the museum so uh, it starts in our main gallery. It starts in 1914, and, you, and it goes around all the way to 1919 at the end of the war with the peace treaty. And, you know, everything from uniforms to cannons to uh, uh, communication devices like we were talking about. So we cover really every aspect of the war, from air warfare to sea, the war at sea to uh, women. We're very, uh, we have a large collection of women's materials. Uh, they were very important in the war effort. And, um, you know, it really covers the whole gamut of this uh, cataclysm of the 20th century. And if people want to visit, they can go online to our website, and it's www.theworldwar.org. And we have uh, lots of things on there for people to see. And we also have links to our Facebook and to our Twitter account. Doran Cart, thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. Appreciate your letting me come on this morning, Doctor. More with Animals Today after this break. If you're like most people, you have lots of plans. A financial plan, an exercise plan, a career plan. You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day, animals are sent to shelters, terrified and confused because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately, many of them get euthanized. Some people don't give the future a thought. Others assume family members will care for their pets. A better way is to name caregivers and provide detailed instructions about your pet's feeding, social, play, and health care needs. 
kids. But even designated caregivers can't guarantee your pet will join a stable and loving home. Good intentions sometimes take a backseat to life's realities, like a new spouse who doesn't like animals, a sudden desire to travel the world, or the adoptive caregiver's own illness. A legally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions. Almost every state recognizes pet trusts. Find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic. Plan for your pet's lifelong well-being. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. Well, September is Save the Koala Month. You know what that means, Peter, right? It's Save the Koala Month. Pop quiz. Oh, yes. Did you have any classes where your teachers would spring a pop quiz on you? Oh, my goodness. In Spanish class, in like in eighth grade, it was just a nightmare. And you know what? Wait, wait. They would say, okay, does anyone have any questions? Okay, no questions. Okay, pop quiz. You must all know the material, right? I hate when they did that. Were you prepared? It was just terror. It was just not fair. That sick feeling in your stomach. Uh, I had a math teacher that would give us a pop quiz once a week, but we wouldn't know which day of the week it would be, so we would just always have to be prepared. That's terrible. That's what gives you ulcers. (laughs) Okay, so koalas. Okay. True or false? Koala bears are a type of bear. Oh, that's a funny question. I don't think they're bears. That's correct. It is false. They are not bears, and they are not even related to bears. They get their name koala bear because they sort of look like teddy bears. Mm-hmm. True or false, koalas are marsupial mammals. That's true. Yes, that is true. Marsupial meaning they carry their babies in pouches like kangaroos and opossums. A newborn koala baby is called what? A joey. Very good. Yes. This little joey is less than an inch in length, lives in the mother's pouch for about six months while its eyes, legs, and fur develop, and then he or she makes its way out of the pouch onto his or her mother's back and just rides on mom's back as joey continues to be nursed by mother with her milk. And then after about a year, she or he is pretty much fully weaned and is off on its own. Fully grown koalas weigh about 20 pounds. Peter, koalas have litters of babies like Dogs and cats, true or false? I'm going to say, let's see. I'm going to say, yes, more than one. False. Ah. One baby at a time. Mm. Koalas live in packs, true or false? No, no. I'm going to say no. False. They prefer to live alone. That's right. Koalas spend most of their lives in trees. The only food koalas eat are eucalyptus leaves, fruit and nuts, insects and rodents. Oh, I believe those eucalyptus. Eucalyptus, is that? Am I saying that right? Eucalyptus leaves. That's correct. The only food koalas eat, which happens to be poisonous to most animals, are eucalyptus leaves. Koalas have certain bacteria in their stomachs to help detoxify the chemical toxins in the leaves and helps with the digestion process. They eat about a pound of leaves per day. There are different varieties of eucalyptus leaves in the wild, and each koala acquires a taste for a specific variety by adulthood. And koalas don't need to drink much water. They obtain most of their water from the leaves. So they spend most of their lives in trees, and they need lots of trees and lots of space to keep them happy and healthy. Other than in zoos, koalas are only found where? I'm going to say Australia. Correct. 
The estimated lifespan of a koala in the wild is about 13 to 18 years, but their lifespan is beginning to decline because their habitat is disappearing. As of 2015, the Australian Koala Foundation estimates that there are less than 80,000 koalas left, with the possibility of that number being as low as 43,000. Koalas are not officially classified as endangered, but the Australian koala population has dropped by 90 percent in less than a decade. So they are definitely threatened. Their population is shrinking due to the destruction of their natural habitat. I read 80 percent of their habitat has been destroyed. So we're just cutting down all their eucalyptus trees. Mm. Very sad. Yes, I've heard this story before, you know, habitat loss. Yes, many times. Yeah. Okay, so What's my score on oh, this pop quiz? You got 50% right. What would that be in, in a math class? Like a C minus? In most colleges, that would be a, a minus. 50% equals A minus these days. Right. Well, you certainly weren't prepared. Eucalyptus. Eucalyptus. What's the plural of eucalyptus? Eucalypti? Eucalyptuses? Mm. 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 What do you have there, Peter? Lori, I have a little study from the Pew Research Center that has to do with the views of various groups of people about how they feel about animals and scientific research. Very interesting topic to our listeners. Yes. Overall, among U.S. adults, 52% oppose the use of animals in scientific research and 47% favor it. Wow, I'm surprised that about half of the adult population is in favor of experimentation with animals. I don't know if I'm surprised by that or not, but I'll tell you there is also a wide gender gap. Among men, 58% approve, and among women, Overall, 36% approve. Right, because we're more sensitive and compassionate and smarter. They also split it out among those with various degrees of science knowledge. They've got this little test. And uh, among those with high scientific knowledge, 63% approve. Wow. Among those with medium scientific knowledge, 44% approve. And among those with low scientific knowledge, 37% approve. There you go. That doesn't make sense. Well, that's the survey results for now. Well, that doesn't make sense to me because scientifically knowledgeable people ought to know the limitations of animal research and how it's not applicable in many cases to humans. Oh, and I've got one more element of this in case you were wondering if there's a partisan difference in the survey results. And the answer is no. Whether you're Republican or Independent or Democrat, the results stay about the same. Interesting. Yep. Peter, there's an animal shelter in a very small town in Arkansas doing something very cute to boost their adoptions. So the way most shelters or foster care individuals market adoptable animals on Facebook is by simply putting up a picture and description of the dog or cat, right? Well, one of the workers at the shelter thought it would be a good idea to put live video on Facebook with him and the dog dressed up in matching costumes. And the costumes range from superheroes to well-known pop stars. And I will tell you, these are not only generating a lot of attention, but according to this guy who is appearing on the videos, nine out of ten times the animal on the video is adopted or a rescue group comes in and gets the animal out of there. 
more than 33,000 people like the shelter's Facebook page, which is more than the population of West Memphis, which is the name of the city in Arkansas. So the video I saw, he was dressed up like Princess Leia and the dog is Yoda, and another one where he's dressed up as Batman and the dog is Supergirl. And the guy sings or just does some cute little performance as he's standing there holding the dog or standing with the dog, and it sure seems to be working. That's really great, Lori. Please don't volunteer me, though. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The animals.